You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Shifting societal norms and increased scientific and biological study have shifted the landscape in regards to gender identity. According to a recent study, transgender men and women may carry genetic variants that influence their gender identity. In fact, researchers have identified a panel of genes, including DNA, involved in the development of nerve cells and the manufacture of sex hormones. These findings add to the growing evidence that transgender people have a fundamental difference in their brains and biochemistry that may help explain why they feel at odds with their birth sex. Recently, I was challenged by my guest, Kylie Justine, to cover gender identity as a part of the series on LGBTQ issues. I took her up on this challenge and today we will be talking to Alex Ian Taffy about practically understanding gender. Alex is a licensed marriage and family therapist, supervisor, sex therapist, scholar, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy. His book, How to Understand Your Gender, co-written with Meg John Barker, is available now wherever books are sold. I'm Sean DeRager, and welcome to The Armchair Philosopher. Today on The Armchair Philosopher, I'm very pleased to have Alex Iantafi uh, on the episode. And uh, I've been teasing this for a few weeks now, but we're going to jump into gender identity. And uh, it was a, this was a tricky one. And uh, one of my guests a few episodes ago, Kylie Justine, she challenged me to uh, kind of broach the subject, to research this, and to do an episode on it. So here I am. The episode has arrived. So Alex, welcome to The Armchair Philosopher. Well, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure that we figured out a time, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's a, it, we've been kind of juggling our schedules a little bit, and I wanted to give a quick shout out to <laughs> Erica Hanna. So we kind of share someone that we know, and Erica Hanna, I went to college, we uh, went to college with her uh, in a, for my communications degree, and she's awesome. And she reached out to me when I mm-hmm. was starting to uh, work this idea around about doing this episode and she recommended you. So big shout out to Erica. Thank you for, for bringing Alex my way. I wanted to kind of start off and kind of get to know you a little bit. And I've read your bios in your, your book and, and you have, you have some blog posts online and, and everything. And I, I feel like your, your, your story is pretty fascinating. And uh, especially for someone like me who, who just, it's just one of those subjects I haven't 
researched yet, <laughs> basically, mm-hmm. uh, about gender identity and, and everything. And your story is is pretty fascinating. So I wanted to kind of get a little snapshot of what it was like growing up and how you, uh, how and when you kind of, I guess, came into your own in, in a sense. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think how to kind of sum it up a little <laughs> bit, but... Um... Well, let's start from the beginning, which is I was uh, born in Rome, Italy. Um, My mom is from Sicily, so I also spent a lot of time in Sicily, and I was assigned female at birth. Uh, And all that means is that when I was born, people uh, thought I was a girl. And so um, I was just... um, I when I look at photos of when I was little, uh, I don't look particularly girlish in some ways, and I do in other ways. Um, so in, in my Ignite talk, for example, around gender, I talk about, I got asked a lot, are you a boy or a girl? Or even as a teenager, sometimes people fr- would see me from behind on the bus and would think I was a boy. And then I would turn around and see that I was a girl. And so I always confuse people around my gender. <laughs> and that, I don't think I was doing it on purpose. I was just kind of being myself and doing what was comfortable. But what was comfortable didn't seem to quite fit with what was expected, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a lot of expectations. You know, I grew up in Italy in the in the 70s and 80s, and there were lots of expectations around how I was supposed to behave, um, how I was supposed to interact with people. Even I remember my grandma and great aunt always telling me to like keep my knees together when I sat down, especially with a skirt. You know, sit like a lady. And I was very uh, confounded by what that was really uncomfortable. <laughs> I thought. Um, and so I was fascinated uh, by gender kind of early on. Um, I was fascinated by Barbies. I was uh, I was just really intrigued by this whole idea of why people thought certain people could do some things or could not do other things. And then I was also really influenced by my paternal aunt. So my the my father's sister, who was a, a 70s second wave feminist. And she kind of brought feminism into my life. So I was really, okay, I'm a girl, but I can do anything. I don't have to kind of keep with this idea of gender. And and I hang in there for a while with this. And then when I moved to the UK in my early 20s, I started um, studying women's studies more. And I was teaching women's studies as well as a graduate uh, PhD student. And um, I got even more interested in the idea of gender, given that my own um, area of study, my own PhD was focused on gender and it's speci- specifically the intersection of gender and disability. Because I noticed that disabled women and disabled men were treated very differently in the context of academia. Mm. So I was really interested in that idea. Um, and so I've been fascinating about the idea uh, of gender for a long time. And then, um, you know, I came out as a bisexual person and as a queer person. And then eventually I came across transgender people and gender queer and gender fluid um, and what now um, often are called non-binary, um, people with non-binary genders. And so I started to really question whether the gender that I was assigned at birth really fit for me or not. And I started to identify first a gender queer then identify as transgender, and I socially transitioned, which means I 
changed my pronouns. I actually have gone um, by Alex since I was 14 years old after I watched the movie Flashdance because <laughs> at the time uh, the, na- the main character is also called Alex in Flashdance and she did not behave as you would expect a girl to behave. You know, she was kind of, she had agency uh, sexually and she was a dancer, but she was like a metal welder. And so this kind of non-binary fluid thing that was going on for her was very attractive to me. So I started going by Alex when I was 14. So I didn't change my name, but I changed my pronouns. And um, then eventually about eight years ago, I also had some medical interventions and kind of transitioned medically a little bit more. And I identify as trans and I also identify as non-binary. So I, I feel like the idea of the gender binary doesn't quite fit for me. So I do present as trans masculine and I use he or they pronouns, but I feel like um, there are many ways of being masculine or feminine. Mm-hmm. And then my identity is more fluid and non-binary than my presentation is sometimes, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and this is all just so fascinating to me about how society uh, dictates or how it has in the past, you know, what is masculine and what's not. And um, uh-huh. something that I'm running into, I, got, I have three kids and my youngest, he just turned six and he loves the color pink. He loves, uh, he loves, you know, uh-huh. Barbies and My Little Pony and all yep. things that are cute. And that's fantastic. And we've had some family kind of issues back and mm-hmm. forth a little bit with, you know, well, he's not masculine enough. He's not playing with the right to- toys. Get him into sports. You need, he needs to spend more time with his dad, <laughs> with, with me, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I find that, that those kind of the pressure of society in certain areas, uh, is tough. And for, for us, I just want to let him play with the stuff that he likes. I mean, I, and, uh, and I want to I want to approach this a little bit later because I have a question from a listener uh, in regards to this. But it's just amazing how how society has done that. And um, I want to get into uh, a little bit more of this. But first, I think I want to cover some of these definitions you've mentioned trans. And on the past episodes, we've mentioned some of this too: uh, gender queer, non-binary, and then uh, and cis. And then there's some other things. So what are what are some kind of um, definitions that say someone, if there's a listener who is kind of new to this, uh, researching this and, and even discussing this, what are some of the definitions that they would be beneficial to learn in order to kind of further this conversation? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because even just the word gender is so confusing, right? Mm-hmm. We use gender both to refer to like, like I use gender as in terms of my gender identity, but also gender as this idea in culture and society, right, of what gender is. So kind of starting from gender, that's a really um, large construct that includes both aspects of identity, but also this kind of biopsychosocial component, which sounds like a really big word, but I'll kind of break it down. So, and my friend McJohn Barker and I talk about this in our book, How to Understand Your Gender, that the biological component is um, not just kind of a reproductive system or kind of the genitals we're born with, but it's also our chromosomes and the way our brain works. And all this, um, the biological aspect is far more complex sometimes than we think about. And actually, very few people know what their actual biological sex is because very few people have their chromosome tested and we know that there are far more variations in chromosomes than we initially thought and there's some really good science 
around that that's been emerging in the past couple of decades. And then the psychological component is our sense of self, right? Who we are in the world in relation to ourselves and to others. And then the social component is how do we interact with this idea of gender that's out there in the broader culture and kind of comes out in those social interactions, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about gender, all these different aspects feed into somebody's sense of identity. So when I talk about my gender identity, what I'm talking about is the gender that I feel I am in myself. This is kind of who I am. So when I say non-binary, it just means that I don't quite fit, like I don't identify as male and I don't identify as female. Now, some people also identify as non-binary and, uh, and a woman or non-binary and a man or non-binary overall. Some people might identify as a gender, um, which means they don't really identify with any aspect of kind of social cultural gender. They don't feel like they have a gender per se um, or might be more gender fluid. Some people identify completely with the the sex that have been assigned at birth. And that's often we refer to as cis people. CIS is just a prefix that comes from Latin, which means on the same side of. So if your sex assigned at birth is on the same side of your gender identity, then you're a cis person. And if it's across from your, your gender identity is across from your sex assigned at birth somewhere, um, then you're a trans person. And cis, um, often sometimes people don't like being referred to as cis people. Um, but really the origins of the word are not to um, upset anybody or offend anybody. It's just to bring to light that we all have a gender and sometimes our gender aligns with our sex assigned at birth and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so we, we can't assume that we know how somebody's going to identify, right? So that's kind of like the cis trans thing. And then transgender is a huge umbrella. Mm -hmm. um, some non-binary people identify as transgender, some don't. Um, some people, uh, some transgender people feel very binary, feel that there's like men and women and they fall in one of those categories. Um, and that's a category that's different from the sex that were assigned at birth. So there, there's so many genders under the transgender umbrella. And then it gets a little more complicated <laughs> because not only do we have a gender, right? Not only do we have a gender identity, we also have things like a gender expression, which is how we outwardly express our gender through our clothing, through our hair, whether we wear makeup or not, our mannerisms, right? And our gender expressions can be really broad. So um, whether somebody is cisgender or transgender or non-binary, they can have, you know, hundreds of different types of gender expressions, right? So somebody could be assigned female at birth and identify as a woman, but have a bit more of a masculine, for example, or androgynous gender expression or a completely feminine gender expression or a mixture of all of the above. And then just to make things a little more complicated still, there's also gender roles. So the roles that we are expected to fall into because of society. So often... Um, you know, I now live in the U.S. and in kind of dominant culture in the U.S., we expect women often to be kind of more nurturing and caring and, and softer and ideas that link to masculinity. You know, you mentioned some of them when you talked about your child. You know, there's an expectation that men would like sports. They find talking about feelings a little bit harder. You know, the 
you know, they need to like toughen up, expression mm-hmm. like men up. That's really about gender roles. It's so gender identity, expression and roles are all kind of different aspects um, of gender. And um, anybody can have a mixture of those. So, for example, a stay at home dad might see themselves as in a traditionally feminine role for example. Mm -hmm. And there are some challenges with that. Or somebody who is, um, uh, you know, um, a woman truck driver might be going against some of the kind of stereotypes that we have in the culture, or a male nurse, and, you know, the list could go on and on because we have lots of different social and cultural expectations around gender. I've seen these kind of stereotypes kind of uh, happen, you know, even even in churches mm-hmm. I've been in, you know, the the worship leader is supposed is is almost joked around that they're kind of a pansy, you know what I mean? And stuff like that mm-hmm. I've heard from like the pulpit. Yeah. And that just, <laughs> I just that happened in the churches that, that I was in one time. And I got so I was so upset uh, that that yeah. was even a, a stereotype joke uh, from the pulpit. And then and even even in society. Uh, even on, you know, Saturday Night Live, there was that whole, in, in, was it the nineties or there was the, it's the whole, Mm -hmm. it's Pat thing. And now like looking back at that, it's like, man, that is like, there's no way that can fly today because of how much we know now that we know, uh, Mm -hmm. a little more about gender. It just seems so mean spirited. Um, how have you seen society kind of change a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And and I like that you said mean-spirited because I think those stereotypes end up being really hurtful, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the things I've noticed, you know, I've been um, talking about gender and teaching about gender. First, uh, actually, as a second-wave fem- feminist who was not really aware of trans issues like in my 20s. So I've been doing this for over 25 years now. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, in during this time, one thing they have noticed is that everybody has a little bit of, um, uh, they have stories where there's some pain around gender, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember, for example, being interviewed by somebody on a local radio, uh, like a cis woman, cis straight woman, we were talking, um, and then she started talking about how she wasn't allowed to wear certain clothes at school, and she had been shamed for wearing, I think it was like those pants skirt things that were popular at one point in the right. 80s. Um, and there was like some public shaming that happened around that. Um, I've also, you know, I've done some research with kind of older people around their sexuality, and several of the older men in their 60s and 70s talked about how much they wish they knew what they know now as older men when they were younger. And they realized that some of the ways they behaved when they were younger were really actually harmful to the women in their lives uh, because of those stereotypes of masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think everybody's got um, kind of some pain around that. And the example that you gave of like calling somebody a pansy from the pulpit that that gives a lot of different layers right of messaging there's a layer where it's basically saying it's not okay to have a softer masculinity like a caring kind of um, softer type of masculinity is not acceptable which of course then it's linked with like homophobia and queerphobia right Mm -hmm. if you're a softer masculine person then you cannot be straight which we also know is not true like gender and sexuality are kind of cousins but they're different things so just because some might have a softer masculinity or a more nurturing masculinity or is not interested in sports doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to turn out to be gay or bisexual or trans right um there are so many ways of different being masculine or feminine but 
I think those stereotypes then make people feel like if they don't fit in the stereotypes, they feel uh, uneasy with themselves. And then that becomes a little bit of a source of pain. Mm -hmm. You know, they might not do sports that they want to do, or they might do sports they don't want to do, or they might not really ever wear the clothes they want to, or have the relationships they want to. So one of the things I'm passionate about is how those harmful gender stereotypes get in the way of authenticity. And then if we cannot be authentic in our sense of selves, it's hard to have genuine relationships. Mm -hmm. And then that really impacts our well-being. So for example, with toxic masculinity, I mean, it only takes looking at the figures from public health to see how you know, men uh, who are more reluctant to maybe go to the doctor or talk about their feelings might be more impacted by certain diseases, right? And might die younger because of that. So this has got real life repercussions. You know, it's not just about hurt feelings. It's actually about people not seeking the medical care they need or people's lives being shortened because they are not getting um, the basic mental, emotional, and physical needs met that they need to have met because of this kind of harmful stereotypes. I think that's an important um, difference to point out is, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, gender and sexuality and societal norms and, and, and all that stuff, they're all different animals that kind of work mm-hmm. together. Um, I wanted to know, like, so, but just because we're more open to talking about this stuff now doesn't mean it's a new thing. And through your research and, and looking yeah. into this, what uh, what have you discovered as far as even, you know, uh, our, our ancestors, even in, I know there's been stories mm-hmm. about, you know, the the, the indigenous, indigenous people of the, the U.S. Mm-hmm. and, you know, some would say Native Americans. Um yeah, and and things like that throughout history, and even even in because I I grew up in a more of a fundamentalist Christian church, uh, I've read a lot mm-hmm. of the Bible. Even in the Bible, it's kind of hinted at, yes. you know, with eunuchs and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. What what did your research uh, has your research and just being involved with this uncovered on your end? Absolutely, um, I'm really glad you asked me about that. Uh, you know, really. Sometimes, often, I'm also a therapist, and um, sometimes I work with trans folks. One of the questions I get asked so often is like, you know, why am I trans or why is my child trans? And I always say, you know, science is figuring it out, but the best evidence we have is from history and kind of uh, anthropology and archaeology because gender diversity has existed all across the globe and all across historical times. So everywhere in the globe... um, and kind of at different times, we find that gender um, was defined as more than just two things, for example. And and what that looks like is different in different kind of cultures and in different historical times. So you mentioned indigenous folks, for example, in different tribes, there would be different ways in which gender would work. But it was definitely not just, there were not just two genders. And the way gender worked in my understanding and from my research and talking to uh, folks who study kind of um, or are part of indigenous communities and also study their own history is that those roles were not just individual, but they were also social. And one of the things that happened with settler colonialism was that this diversity of gender, both in roles and in language, uh, was erased um, through the destruction of langu- language and culture and um, kind of the the genocide, not just of people, but of kind of the linguistic aspects and the families and the and the tribes. 
And so what has what has been happening in the last 30 to 40 years and and of course longer than that is that there's been a reclaiming so for example many um indigenous folks in north america in the 80s came up with the english-based term to spirit which is specific to north american indigenous people um and which actually it's not just about gender but it is also about sexuality and it is also about kind of social roles in a community and uh, and that's kind of a new term that was invented to take back something that had been erased in lots of ways if we look at the roman empire there were people like the galli who were the priestess priests and priestesses of the goddess the frisian goddess Cybele, and they were often assigned male at birth but would dress femininely like you said in the bible it kind of refers to a little bit more of a gender diversity than we might think about today so this has always existed, but then at some point there's been this idea kind of overimposed that there are only two genders um, and gender and sex are the same thing and there's only two and this is just how things work. Mm-hmm. But actually, when we look, like you said, at our ancestors and history all over the world, the picture is a little bit more complicated. And then we also need to look at the historical context because what gender looked like, for example, I don't know, in 100 BC is not the way that gender looks now, right? Right. And even now, the the way that gender looks like in the US is not the way it looks in England, where I lived for a bunch of time. It's not the way that it looks in Italy. I remember when I was in my 20s and I was studying women's studies, an English woman asked me if I was a feminist because I came from like such a repressed patriarchal kind of society. Um, And this said a lot about the stereotypes she had of Italy. And I was like, Actually, I found myself way more repressed here in England <laughs> than I was in Italy. I was like, I, I knew a lot of strong women. I was never silenced for like, um, at the time I would identify as a woman. I was like never silenced when I was studying at university. I never felt I was expected to not be as smart. Um, and when I was doing my doctoral program in the UK, I absolutely felt that I was expected to bow down to kind of the male professors in a way that was completely different culturally um, to what I'd been used to in my first degree. So none of those concepts are neutral um, and they are really complex, both kind of right now and then historically. Do you tackle some of this in, mm-hmm. in your in your book, uh, How to Understand Your Gender? And I highly recommend it. Anyone who wants to look into this, please grab this book because it's done in a way, kind of an intro level way for people to kind of dip their toe into this and but it is it's dense but it's not over everyone's heads it's i think it's a, it's approachable no. i really really do love the work that you and um uh, and meg john barker put into this so I, I recommend i'll put a link in the show notes for it but that's the thing like everyone tries to uh, is approaching this stuff like it's a new thing like uh, like yes. in like spiritual circles, it'd be like, well, this is the downfall yeah. of the United States. We need to turn away from yeah. sin <laughs> yeah. and things and things like that. And when you start digging into the history and you start uncovering all this stuff that has kind of been washed over and a lot of it yeah. by uh, the the Christian church through the Crusades. I mean, as Christianity kind of came and conquered, a uh, conquered is a big is. I don't know if that's the right word, but it kind of, when you look at certain history and certain things, you kind of see the church conquering different areas, taking over and, and putting their ideas of gender and sexuality, uh, through their interpretation of the Bible 
onto the the countries and the and the peoples that they're that they're taking over. And we we definitely saw that in the in the United States, mm-hmm. for sure, um, that has happened. But what I love is that these little bits of information are have been uncovered through through science and and through history and research and uh it's it's it just shows me that that this is a, a this is a bigger thing uh a bigger idea and a bigger there's a lot more to it than what we what we've been especially me have been led to believe and um uh-huh. i want to jump into a couple questions from some listeners and then and then we'll we'll go from there um some pretty good uh some questions here uh let's see here this one comes from joy she was my uh, professor back in uh, back in college. I'm going to read her question and then repurpose it if, if I have to. But she says, uh, what was the first uh, uh, parentheses trigger slash experience slash cultural milestone unparentheses uh, that indicated uh, a person's gender identity? The earliest experience that felt like, ah, oh, that's me. And uh, so so I guess so what was the point in, in your life that you were like, oh, wow, mm. I am. And you may have answered this in the beginning, but what was there a specific instance okay. that you were like, oh, wow, I am, you know, there's more to me than just female. <laughs> was there? A sp- yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it is different for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, for me, I knew there, w- there was this like, um, this is where uh, we really need language to know what we're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. So I remember feeling this unease with like the expectations like I remember that I remember feeling really happy that people thought I was a boy when I was like five or six years old right it didn't bother me at all that feeling never went away I I used my dad used to take me to the barbers to get my haircut and it's really funny because like in his mind it was just like oh you like your hair cut short so it makes more sense to go to a barber than a hairdresser (laughs) because they know how to cut hair short and I was a swimmer and so that was a really good uh, a swimmer and a runner, so there was a really good reason for me to keep my hair short, which I've always preferred having uh, my hair much shorter. I went through a period of having my hair longer in the tw- my 20s, and I hated it. Um, <laughs> so there was kind of this feeling of like, this girl thing doesn't quite fit me, but there are pieces of it that mm-hmm. fits me. Like, I, I did have a lot of feelings. I liked making clothes for my Barbie, and <laughs> I liked reading books, and I liked theater, and I liked dancing. So those were all things that fitted, uh, but I didn't like having to keep clean or only wearing certain clothes or, you know, like I wanted to play in the dirt with the boys. I wanted to run around. I wanted to climb on things. So there was always um, kind of early on this feeling of I don't quite fit, but I don't know what it is. And I remember even in my 20s talking about feeling like I was in drag, um, mm. you know, like a drag queen and people laughing at me and going, oh, but you're a girl. So you you can't be in drag. Right. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, no, I totally was. <laughs> I just didn't know how to express it. Right. And so when I, I was like, I was trying to express this thing that I've been feeling since I was quite little. And then it wasn't until, um, and even the first time that I came across the idea of gender queer people, I was like, oh, that fits, but it can't be me because all the, I know this sounds so silly, but at the time, uh, I thought all the gender queer people I know are very slim and androgynous in their body, and my body is not slim and androgynous. Um, it's a pretty characteristic kind of Southern Mediterranean body just more curvaceous and not as androgynous. And so I thought that cannot be me. And it took me a minute to be like, 
you know, another minute as in like two years. <laughs> like, no, this is not about my body. This is about how I feel. So it took several conversations with other trans people and gender fluid people and non-binary people to be able to say, oh, this is me. This is who I am. This is where I fit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we need so many different narratives out there, because sometimes there's only one narrative, right? I was born in the wrong body. I always knew. But for a lot of people, it's way more of a complex journey of self-discovery. And also things can change at different times. Like I know people who came out as transgender or non-binary in their 60s and 70s and their 80s. Like, um There are lots of ways that people find themselves, right? And of course, now young people have a lot of information accessible, so they're finding themselves faster and they have the language faster. Um, But there is still a journey there. Even if they say, I'm trans, what happens when I'm talking with them in therapy? Then I'm like, okay, that's great. What does that look like for you? You know that you have a lot of choices of how to express who you are. And um, what a lot of studies have found is that actually – there are so many more non-binary people than we ever imagined, both uh, amongst trans people and cis people alike. So that for a lot of people, this idea of the very rigid gender binary doesn't quite fit. And people find this out anytime between three, four years old to, you know, 99. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really, um, the range is very broad of when people find themselves. Okay, fantastic. That and that brings me to my next, the next question from a listener here. This listener would they they prefer to stay anonymous, and it's kind of a it's it's mm-hmm. it's not long winded, but there's a kind of a lot of setup. So I'm just gonna go ahead and read it, and then um, then we'll 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 answer the question. Um, mm-hmm. so he says as as a progressive thinking individual, I agree that raising one's child child as quote gender neutral unquote would provide the optimal space for that child to develop and choose an identity for themselves. But how can that happen outside of an affirming community bubble, say like a small neighborhood in Portland that everyone, you know, uh, that supports the idea. Um, And so that's first kind of question, I guess. Uh, And then he says, uh, we progressives have been arguing for years that nobody chooses to be gay or trans. Nobody chooses that difficult road of being different, of, of being different, of being an outcast and the target of bigotry, why then would we deliberately put a target on our children's backs when there is a 50-50 chance they'd otherwise live a gender normative life? Uh, isn't it possible to mm-hmm. raise our children with open minds about gender identity while still acknowledging the biology nature gave them? Uh, and then he says, uh, tell me why considering gender neutral for our children is the most loving, compassionate choice for them in today's still very bigoted and small-minded world. <laughs> so ultimately, what do you, what do you, I guess, first think about the mm-hmm. people raising their children as gender neutral? And I've, I've seen that in a few spaces. Um, I have my own opinions about it, but I want to hear what you think first and we can discuss. Yeah, this, this is such a great question. I love it. Um, I'm a great, so I'll start from kind of, <laughs> I'll start from the end. I'll give you my okay. answer first and then I kind of backpedal. I'm like, why I think that. I think what's, um, I think what we need, I believe in bringing up our children gender critical rather than gender neutral. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. (laughs) I absolutely agree with, with your anonymous listener that, um, even with our best efforts, we do not live in a gender neutral world. Also, you know, my goal is not for the world to be neutral. I want, maybe it's because I'm a, 
Pisces and I like everybody to just like we're all connected and we have this brilliance, you know, in the world. I want everybody to be like all the 500 shades of all the different kind of um, sparkly rainbow of genders that's Mm -hmm. out there. Right. So my goal is not for gender neutrality it's for gender liberation. And I think we can only get gender liberation for our children through them having full and age-appropriate engagement with this idea of gender, right, in culture and society. So, um, so first of all, I be, I'm a really believer. I agreed. Like, there's no such thing as a gender-neutral world. So, our children need to figure out how to be in relationship with this idea of gender, both in their own families, in themselves, and in the world at large, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that. Um, there are lots of different ideas out there and lots of different things have been tried. And I know that when my child was little, um, I, it was fascinating to me um, when she was before she could tell me what she wanted to wear. Right. So babe, as a baby and as a toddler, we had a lot of kind of hand me downs and she had a lot of different clothes. And so I would just dress my baby however I felt like that day. Right. Mm-hmm. She might be wearing pink one day. She might be wearing brown another day or blue or red, all that kind of stuff. Right. And then she has a name that can be shortened to a gender neutral name, which I kind of actually used when she was little. And so strangers would say, oh, what a beautiful girl or what a be- or what a strong boy, depending on how they were reading my baby. Right. Huh. <laughs> and and I wouldn't correct them, actually. I would be like, yes, he is or she is. And I would just like, kind of go with it. Um, and this was the same child <laughs> behaving in absolutely the same way. Right. Just slightly different kind of clothing. Um, and it was fascinating to me uh, to see how people reacted differently. And there are lots of wonderful studies out there that have looked at how gender bias starts really early on from people being pregnant and the way we interact with babies and the way we interact with toddlers and all that. Now, kids pretty early on are capable of telling us who they are. My kid, by the time she was four years old, even though she was brought up in a very Um, gender diverse community where there were people of all genders including transgender folks and she understood that um, not all girls were born with the same genital not all boys were born with the same genital at like four she was like I'm a girl she was assigned female birth and she identified as a girl and and I have her permission to talk about Mm -hmm. these aspects of her story she's she's a teenager now and uh, um Kind of, we talk about um, consent and using parts of her story right. um, to kind of illustrate some of those points. And um, and as she's been growing older, so she was very uh, clear on who she was. This was not confusing. Being exposed to the idea that there are many genders was not at all confusing for her. And then what we found is as she's been growing older, she's been in. You know, we would talk about if we watch a Disney movie together, we talk about. How is gender playing out differently in Brave, say, mm. compared to an older movie like White, right? Uh, or when she was little, <laughs> I remember once she kind of fell into my arms and she was like, I'm a princess, rescue me. And I said, <laughs> you're a warrior princess with superpowers and you can rescue yourself. And she was like, yes. <laughs> you know, and she wanted to play in the playground because I want her to be a strong person. I would want that for if I had a boy or a non-binary child, I would want that for them, too. I want them to feel agency and the capacity to influence the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we need to engage um, with our children to talk about all these different things that we think are really difficult and are for grown-ups only, but they see how this works. Children do engage with gender, with race, with class all the time. And so if we can 
talk about all those things with them in an age-appropriate manner, they can be more critical about what their values are and where they are in relationship to those values, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one aspect. And then I would say in terms of uh, babies, I agree, like, you don't know who your baby is going to be. So I love that I have friends um, who are doing a similar thing of like, the baby can wear whatever clothes. Um, and as they get older, they get to make more choices. Mm-hmm. And um, at the moment, we're using a variety of pronouns, because we don't really know how the baby's going to identify and we can use they pronouns as well. And then that baby's going to tell us who they are. To listen, children, and if they know that it's okay, be completely who they are, no matter what. Children will tell so I am the gender, my pronoun, and it's going to be no big deal. I think we make it a big deal as grown ups, if that makes sense. But if they're given um, space, uh, kids will tell us who they are, and and they'll yeah. know who they are um, pretty early on, you know, sometimes around the age of four or five years old. They have a pretty clear sense of gender identity in most kids. Yeah. Well, and, and that's yeah. where um, where I noticed with my son, he was for a while saying he wanted to be a girl just because he was told that he couldn't play with the girl toys and couldn't wear pink. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that we tried to squash pretty quick because I want an open playing field. And, and for me, like... Mm-hmm. This has been a, a topic of conversation in, in, in our household a little a little bit with, with my wife and I, and we've just approached it as um, he, he's allowed to like whatever he likes and, uh-huh. um, and just kind of see where it goes from there. But having the limitations on this is a boy shirt, this is a girl shirt, that, that kind of stuff um, exactly. almost made him want to go the other way as far as gender goes, wishing he was a girl. So taking taking that away, any mm-hmm. out, trying to take out any outside, uh, I guess, influencers as far as people's telling him, you know, that's not for you, okay. it's for only for girls, um, trying to, to approach it there, and then kind of going and moving forward and seeing how that happens. Because um, a lot of people wonder, like we had an, another listener named Brian, he just asked on, on Facebook, you know, how do we, how do we approach this discussion with our kids? And, and I think you, you've laid it out pretty uh-huh. well. And it's something that as parents, uh-huh. we kind of in, in this day and age, we do think about. And I think this uh, simplifying is better rather than rather than stressing about it or uh, spending too much time Absolutely. thinking about it. Just let the kid be a kid. Let them enjoy their lives. Let them discover what they like. Yeah. And as kids grow into who they are, you know, that's when you can have the conversations. And we have, you know, I have a wide range of kids. I got six, uh, 11 and 13. So I'm at different, very different levels of who each of these kids are growing into mm-hmm. and but allowing them the space to grow um, is important. And I I've always I've used uh, the idea, the example of like a, the koi fish in the koi pond, right? Those Japanese like goldfish. You know, you keep one in a mm-hmm. small container, it'll stay small. You give it some room and it'll grow into, you know, into the space that it's given. And the last thing I want to do Absolutely. is is, yeah. is limit my child's potential on who they can be. And um, and I think I, I think stressing about it is not the way to go. No, I, I so agree with you that stressing about it is not the way to go. And what I love about the example that you gave about your child is that you were listening to your child. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you said, no, you're a boy. You said, oh, you know, probably 
I imagine the conversation from what you were saying would go something like, what makes you say that? I'm right. curious, right? Oh, because girls get to wear those things or use those toys. And there's a big difference between children saying, I am a girl or I am a boy or I wish I was or um, and then asking some follow up questions. And, and I love the image that you gave also of the pond, like, right, the the bigger the environment, the more the child can like spread out into who they naturally are. Mm -hmm. And there are so many good resources out there nowadays to teach about gender, you know, um, both from kind of, there's a really nice coloring book, for example, called um, I'm Free to Be Me, Gender Now, a learning adventure for children and adults. And it's, it's literally like three plus, and it talks about some of the things we've been talking about, but um, in an age appropriate way about, you know, there are so many different types of gender. Um, I can dance my dance. You know, there are different types of bodies that are represented. Um, there's the book, uh, What Makes a Baby by Corey Silverberg, which is for kind of four or five years old, explaining kind of how babies come to mm -hmm. be. And it's very inclusive. And then kind of the follow-up, which um, for older children, sex is a funny word, which is for ages eight and up. So there are lots of resources out there. And I completely agree that if kids sense that the parents are trying to do the right thing, but they're really stressed out, they think there's something wrong with this idea of gender, if they're all like, yeah, there are like lots of different genders. And, oh, let's look at this Disney movie and what's telling us about boys and girls. Or let's look at all these different ways of being in the world. Then they'll have more space, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's been very fulfilling kind of diving into all this with when watching like how my kids react. And they were watching, I, I think I mentioned this on a past episode, they were watching the new Supergirl TV show and there's a, yeah. a same-sex couple on there. And we had mm -hmm. just a morning you know, over breakfast and they were, they were telling me that and they're like, and I was like, well, what do you guys think about it? And they're like, well, they're like, I don't know. They're like, you know, it's, it's, we think it's a little bit weird, but we're, but it's fine. Like they're not bad, you know? And, uh, we just took, I just took the kids to, uh, a UCC church and our, our pastor, uh, introduced herself and her wife and the kids didn't bat an eye. It was, it was amazing. It was like, Oh, okay, I'm doing something right. And that that's not a trigger issue as far as like them being confused or even scared or, or whatever. Um, it's just the way it is. And, and if, if it's not for them, it's yeah. not for them, but just approaching people as people. And, and it's, it's been, it's just been so fulfilling. Uh, cause I've been terrified of being a parent ever since I had our first kid, <laughs> you know, and, um, and especially once they get older, uh, addressing this oh, yeah. kind of thing but there's kids are smarter than you kind of could give them credit for and they can figure things out pretty quick as long as they're given an option to to dialogue and if you keep yes. things and don't talk that's where the problem is but being open about Absolutely. all this um it's fine and we had a fantastic conversation at lunch after church and and it was it was really cool and they were on their best behavior i was very proud that uh, yeah. they were they were, i don't know um so i think wrapping up like as far as the kids like give give your kids some credit just absolutely oh and kids are so smart nowadays yeah. they, they have so much information and they're really smart and you know and and kids like there's so much world out there like you mm -hmm. said right there's even um the the netflix series based on the disney movie home which has the boobs and the boobs have something like seven or eight genders and that's for like young age like early early grade school like first second grade and I love that because I'm like oh yeah look at that this is not 
you know, and they're an alien race, of course, mm-hmm. and all of that. But, <laughs> but here is a way of like watching this and talking with your kids like, isn't mm-hmm. that cool? Um, you know, there are many genders in humans, too. There you go. Very simple. Like and you said, it. if you... <laughs> Kids are smart, and it's really not more complicated than that. And it's not confusing to kids. We have so much research that shows us that more information actually helps children and young people to make better choices for themselves, if that makes sense, right? Because they're not trying to fit into something something that doesn't fit. If they have all the information, then they can make good choices because kids are so much smarter and so much more insightful than we give them credit for. And... I so agree that parenting is terrifying. And I say that as both a parent and a family therapist. Sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, if my clients see me dealing with my kid right now, I'm doing everything wrong. But overall, we only need to be good enough and it's okay. You know, we all have our moments of like being tired, not giving the perfect answer, not being like super peaceful all the time and zen, especially when parenting teenagers. Yes. So it's a full contact sport, parenting teenagers. <laughs> Awesome. Um, right. We, all we have to do is be good enough, be curious, ask questions and be there for our kids. That's right. that's what they need. And help them find the answers and just and yeah. And like like you said, there's so much information out here. So we need to start wrapping up. But I wanted yeah. to uh, if you can let us know. So like me, like if you're kind of just diving in to this subject, I want to explore um, what do you yeah. suggest? How do you suggest people pursue this uh this information we have so i've talked about your book which i number one grab how to understand your gender grab that book (laughs) it's super helpful very insightful um oh i love that you love the book it is packed with information that's why man by dance is packed with information but it is written in a very accessible way i think that it's pretty accessible it's written for the general public it's not an academic book or anything like that even though it has academic information in it if that makes sense yes and and you also steer people towards more academic uh writings and and things like that so and you also have your your podcast uh gender stories i do i i started a podcast after the podcast movement challenge and just lots of gratitude to the folks of the podcast movement um for starting the challenge and teaching me (laughs) what to do with my idea of starting a podcast um and i started a podcast um at the beginning of march called gender stories i'm releasing one episode a, a month at the moment i'm thinking of starting doing more and it's really um based on the idea that everybody has a relationship with gender and so i explore different people's stories of all genders so cis people trans people non-binary people and different aspects of gender how it impacts our life erica who you mentioned earlier is one of my wonderful interviewees in one of the episodes we we have an amazing conversation about how gender plays out in your personal and professional life um so yes if if you're not much of a reader kind of gender stories as a podcast and also uh we made like a little zine of our book how to understand your gender and you can find that the zine can be downloaded both from my website alexiantafi.com or from mac john barker's website which is rewriting the rules.com uh, um, so yes, there's a lot of information out there and, uh, Mac John also has a new book that's coming out called gender, a graphic guide, a graphic history, sorry, which I think will be of interest to some of the listeners and should come out next year. And we also have another book called life isn't binary, which takes this idea, starts from the idea of sexuality and gender as binary, 
that then expands to talking about how non-binary thinking around relationship, bodies, emotions, and thinking can improve all of our lives. Do you have a, a website that people can, uh, that kind of brings everything together? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, my website is, could use some improvement, but you can find <laughs> all the information you're looking for at www.alexiantafi.com. So that's A-L-E-X-I-A-N-T-A-F-F-I.com. Well, Alex, thank you so much for talking with me today about all this stuff. I feel like I'm just dipping my toe into the pool and there's so much more that uh, that I can launch from here. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and kind of giving us an, an entry level look uh, into you know gender identity. And, and you know, I'm going to call this episode gender liberation because I think I love that. Oh, term. I love it. So much. Yes, please. And thank yes, you please. for bringing oh. that term to me. It's so good. Absolutely. On mm-hmm. my website, there's even a five minutes Ignite talk that I gave in the city where I live in Minneapolis for Ignite Minneapolis yes. on gender liberation for everybody. It's just five minutes. So it's very kind of concise. And so that also gives a really good um, overview. And I'm just so grateful to have had this space. I feel like I could talk for another two hours, I know, but I know I we know. need to wrap up. So <laughs> just a lot of gratitude for giving me the opportunity to talk about a subject I've been fascinated by my whole life. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Well, um, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk again. Alex, I would like to bring you on, if anything, if, as, as kind of an expert in this area. I know that... Um, I'm I'm going to be moving away from the LGBTQ plus uh, arena for a little bit, but I know things are going to come up and I would definitely like to talk to you again. Like I say, I feel like we only scratched the surface and uh, I definitely look forward to uh, to talking again, again. Oh yeah, absolutely. Feel free to kind of reach out and it's been just an absolute pleasure and, uh, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I super appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Alex Antafi, for talking with me about gender identity and gender liberation. It was a fantastic conversation. I learned so much preparing for this episode and just talking with him about about all this. I'm, uh, but I really, I like I said, I really feel like I just barely scratched the surface here. And if you would like to know more, definitely pick up the book "How to Understand Your Gender: A Practical Guide for Exploring Who You Are." by Alex Antoffy and Meg John Barker. Available everywhere books are sold. There will be a link in the show notes for you to grab your own copy there. Fantastic book and definitely a, a great way to begin the conversation about gender and uh, just a, a fantastic tool to kind of dive in and learn about this. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, we do have a hotline. You can text or you can call and leave a voicemail. If the text is something like a question or something like that, I would love to read it on the show and answer. And uh, if you have a comment, you can go ahead and leave a voicemail. The number is 951-723-5586. Again, that's 951-723-5586. Save that in your phone drop me a text. I would love to hear from you and I would love to answer any questions or any concerns regarding the armchair philosopher. If you'd like to become a patron saint, we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash the AXPX. I have a lot I'm trying to do over there 
when time allows. And of course, the more patrons that come on board, the more availability that I will definitely make for adding more things to this. But right now, what we're what I'm trying to get uh, get going is called Brews and Bibles. I'm going through Pete N's book, The Bible Tells Me So, and there's an introductory little mini episode up on the Patreon site that you can hear. And I will be doing another one very, very soon uh, regarding chapters one and two. And of course, this is the whole goal is in the future, this will be a series that anybody can kind of use on their own time to kind of go through this book and kind of have discussions as we go forward on the book and questions and, and things like that. And hopefully, you know, maybe someday Peter Enns will come on the show and we can kind of take all these questions and kind of throw them at him <laughs> and and continue the conversation with him as well. So I'm pretty sure that's kind of the goal for this. So if you'd like to get involved, uh, become a patron saint over at patreon.com slash the AXPX. Those of you who are patron saints, I thank you so much for uh, for making this show possible, for keeping me going and uh, for feeling like I'm not doing this all on my own. So <laughs> I have a lot of fantastic conversations coming up. In the future, I know that uh, last episode I did talk about us covering cannabis. That is going to happen, but some uh, some some other people became available. So next episode, I'll be talking to Michael Gunger of, of course, the band Gunger. He has the Liturgist podcast. Just a fantastic conversation that I had with him. So that availability opened up and that interview uh, happened. So I'm very excited about that. I have some more Gunger interviews that I'm working on, but uh, kind of too early for me to really commit and say that it's going to happen. But that may be the next few episodes will be kind of Gunger centric. <laughs> and uh, then we'll be jumping into the cannabis conversation. Of course, I, if you have any questions or, or for uh, about any of this stuff, like I said, uh, so my dog snorting in the background. We're just going to keep that in. Um, hit up our hotline, 951-723-5586. You can text or leave a voicemail. I want to thank all of you so much for listening. Thank you so much for uh, keeping the show going by just being involved. Also, Twitter, the AXPX over on Twitter. I'm Sean DeRager. I will talk to all of you next time. Bye-bye.